Good morning. Our sermon passage for today is Luke 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the, be- the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he- she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever." And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Well, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy, one of the Chronicles of Narnia stories, Lewis creates a villainous prince named Rabidash. Rabidash is cocky, arrogant, and full of himself. He only wants what's good for him, even if that comes at the expense of everyone else. He serves the enemy god called Tash, and he desires one of the Narnian queens for his wife, though that is against her will. So to make a long story short, by the end of the book, Rabidash attacks his enemies and is unsuccessful. At the end of the book, he comes before Aslan, the lion Lewis uses to symbolize Jesus Christ, and it's quite the encounter. This upstart, proud prince faces down Aslan the lion, and here's how it goes. Rabidash, said Aslan, take heed. Your doom is very near, but you may still avoid it. Forget your pride. What have you to be proud of? And your anger, who has done you wrong? And accept the mercy of these good kings. Then Rabidash rolled his eyes and spread out his mouth into a horrible, long, mirthless grin like a shark and wagged his ears up and down. Anyone can learn how to do this if they take the trouble. Demon, 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 shrieked the prince. I know you. You are the foul fiend of Narnia. You are the enemy of the gods. Learn who I am, horrible phantasm. I am descended from Tash, the inexorable, the irresistible. The curse of Tash is upon you. Lightning in the shape of scorpions shall be rained on you. The mountains of Narnia shall be ground into dust. The Have a care, Rabidash, said Aslan quietly. The doom is nearer now. It is at the door. It has lifted the latch. Let the skies fall, shrieked Rabidash. Let the earth gape. Let blood and fire obliterate the world. But be sure, I will never desist till I've dragged to my palace by her hair, the barbarian queen, the daughter of dogs, the 
The hour has struck, said Aslan. And Rabidash saw to his supreme horror that everyone had begun to laugh. They couldn't help it. Rabidash had been wagging his ears all the time, and as soon as Aslan said, the hour has struck, the ears began to change. They grew longer and more pointed, and soon were covered with gray hair. And while everyone was wondering where they had seen ears like that before, Rabidash's face began to change too. It grew longer and thicker at the top, and larger eyed, and the nose sank back into the face, or, or else the face swelled out and became all nose, and there was hair all over it, and his arms grew longer and came down in front of him till his hands were resting on the ground, only they weren't hands now, they were hoofs, and he was standing on all fours, and his clothes disappeared, and everyone laughed louder and louder because they couldn't help it, for now what had been Rabidash was simply and unmistakably a donkey. Church, I read that long excerpt to make a point for us this morning. We all like it when arrogance meets its comeuppance, don't we? When people who think themselves better than others are humiliated. We like it when princes become donkeys. And yet... We also love to enshrine and worship the rich, don't we? The celebrity, the, the high and mighty. We love the glamour and wealth of the powerful. We may mock the powerful, but secretly we envy them. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about pride and humility, church. About greatness and meekness. And nowhere is that clearer than the passage Sarah has just read for us from Luke chapter 1. We continue on this morning in this study of Luke's gospel. Luke was a physician who traveled with the Apostle Paul in the early days of the church and also researched and compiled this history about Jesus. He wrote this so that his readers would be certain of its truth. And so far, we've just begun this history. We've seen announcements of coming births, John the Baptist, Jesus. John will be the one who precedes Jesus and alerts Israel to the coming king, the Messiah. And now we pick up the story of these two announcements that we've seen in separate studies come together. And these two pregnant women, Mary and Elizabeth, they meet and rejoice. Two points for this morning, dear church. The blessed Mary and the blessed God. The blessed Mary and the blessed God. So look at first at the blessed Mary. Look in verse 39 with me. Luke writes, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Luke says Mary went with haste. So it seems like after hearing Gabriel's announcement, she didn't take long to act on what he had just said, and that included this new information that she hadn't known that one of her relatives, named Elizabeth, near Jerusalem, was also pregnant in her old age. So Mary gets up, she leaves the, the trip from Nazareth to that hill country around Jerusalem, would have taken at least several days. Mary makes the trek, she arrives and greets her relative. And, and as I was reading this, I, I like to speculate that Zachariah and Elizabeth's house had probably been more silent than usual over the preceding past six months, right? 
Gabriel, remember, had disciplined Zechariah earlier in chapter 1 for his unbelief at hearing God's word. And Zechariah had been given the hard gift of silence until John was to be born and God's word fulfilled. So perhaps Mary's greeting here in verse 40 rings out in a space where Zechariah's greeting has long been absent. And something extraordinary happens. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So upon hearing the the voice of Mary, John the Baptist in utero leaps with joy and Elizabeth feels the leap and it seems the Holy Spirit is now revealing to her the truth about Mary and the promise of the Savior to be born of her. And Elizabeth rejoices. She blesses Mary. The idea of blessing here is of someone who is favored by God. And we've seen that before, right? Last week, we saw Gabriel address Mary as what? Oh, favored one. And Elizabeth echoes that out here. Mary has indeed been blessed. The Savior of the world will come from her womb. Her womb, lowly Mary, will be intimately involved and integrated into the redemption of God's people. And Elizabeth shares with Mary this sense of of humble awe. We see that in verse 43, don't we? Elizabeth says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. To me? Both Mary and Elizabeth are incredulous at the way God is choosing to work through them. Church, God exalts the humble. There in verse 45, Elizabeth ends her speech and says, And blessed is she, speaking of Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Can you see the contrast Elizabeth is making? She's contrasting implicitly Mary's response with Zacharias, her husband's. Zechariah had heard the promise of God in, in a heart of unbelief. And a few weeks ago, we saw this, asked how it could even be possible. But Mary, on the other hand, has had her fair share of questions. But her heart has been submissive to God's will, trusting in his power. And she is blessed. Church, Mary is a model for the Christian in how to trust the word of the Lord. We would do well to study and follow that example. Mary is blessed. However, to be clear, she's blessed because God has shown her grace, not because that grace has originated from her. We see that there in verse 47. Mary calls God her what? Her Savior. Mary understands her lowliness, her unworthiness, like we just sang in that first song, my worth is not in what I own. Her unworthiness to be shown God's grace, but he still shows it to her. He showers it upon her. He is her savior. 
And she receives that grace with awe and thanksgiving. That's why she breaks into song in verse 46. Church, Mary is not at the top of the totem pole when it comes to influence or respectability or position or status, but God chooses a lowly servant to display his magnificent plan. We'll notice throughout Luke's gospel this, this theme of what some have called an upside-down kingdom. Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom. He redefines greatness. He redefines success. He makes the least into the greatest. He exalts the humble like we should have read before in James chapter 4. I just realized I skipped that. Read it later this afternoon. And just for the record, I think one of the ways Luke shows this in his gospel, and we'll see this over and over again, dear church, is that he elevates women in his gospel. Women in that day were not as appreciated even as they are now in our culture, which is very much in trouble as well. And yet Luke shows again and again how God's plan and Jesus' interactions come through women. And here he's showing how God's very plan of redemption that was planned before the foundation of the world is coming through humble, lowly, faithful women who trust him. Even one of the people that you would expect to trust him don't, i.e. Zechariah. Rebecca McLaughlin has written a book recently called Confronting Christianity. Some of you have read it. And she talks specifically about Luke's gospel and Jesus' love towards women. She writes, Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable. In a culture in which women were devalued and often exploited, it underscores their equal status before God and his desire for personal relationship with them. And here we see both Mary and Elizabeth are humble hearers and obedient servants. God will use them. Church, notice also the joy in this passage. Praise is the proper response to the beauty of the gospel, the coming of the king. So we can often come to church or to God's word in the middle of the week or to prayer with our family around the dinner table and we can rehearse the beauty of the gospel together in monotonous routine like it's old news. And I don't, I don't mean to say that we should always respond in sort of this merry type ecstatic euphoric worship. But I do mean to say that the gospel always merits joyful, ecstatic worship. The dullness of our praise to God is never due to a dull gospel, but to dull hearts. Yet, as Jesus remakes us, he will do so in the way that we praise him. He will, as we sing in the wonderful hymn, tune our hearts to sing his praise. 
As we grow in Christ and holiness, church, we will grow also in praise. Proclaiming the worth of this God. Dear Christian, if praise like Mary's words, starting in verse 46 that we're about to look at soon, if words like that, if praise like that just seems biblical but not personal to you, if it seems difficult to conjure up that kind of language for the Lord, if it seems almost foreign to speak to the Lord like this, why not, why not take Mary's words this week and pray them to God? Use these very words to praise the Lord. That's not cheating. That's using God's word and speaking it back to him. Allow God's words to give you the words to sing his praise. Mary is blessed by God, for he has showered her with his grace, and she has responded in faith and trust, and she praises God. She's blessed. Let's see, then, who she blesses. Let's see the blessed God. So the blessed Mary turns in verse 46 to give all the glory, all the blessing, all the praise to the God of her salvation. This hymn that's in the rest of our passage that Sarah read for us earlier in verses 46 to 55 is often called the Magnificat. The Latin word for for magnify that begins this hymn in the old Latin Bible. And it's a good name. This hymn is a hymn of magnification, of of praise, of thanksgiving. So there in verse 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. This song of praise draws from the Psalms and from Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1. Maybe read that later today as well. Mary is using deep scriptural truth to praise God. She says her soul magnifies God, a word that means to make great. It's not, though, that she's actually making God greater, right? No, she's cultivating a greater heart posture of worship. This is no mere lip service from Mary. She believes with all her heart, God is greater than anyone and everything else. So one author puts it like this. He says, usually when we speak of magnifying something, we are making something larger than it really is. But when Mary magnifies the Lord, she isn't making him bigger. She's increasing the love and joy and worship of her heart until it is more in line with how great God is. Mary turns the the spotlight away from her and her blessedness to God and his blessedness. She says her spirit rejoices in God. Why? He's her Savior. He has looked down on her lowliness and humble status, and he has chosen to lift her up. This has always been the way of the Lord. He continues on as 
in, in, in this new stage of redemptive history as he brings his son into the world as the Messiah through the lowliest. And in the lowliest fashion, as we'll see in chapter 2, God exalts the humble. Even today, we are fulfilling what Mary says in verse 48, aren't we? We are one of those generations 2,000 years later that are rising up and calling her blessed. Right here, right now at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. For we see how God had favor on her, showered her with grace in his plan to save. There in verse 49, Mary says, God has done mighty things for her. That's why she sings. It's not that she has done great things for God, but he has decided to shower his love on her. So mighty is his power. Gracious is his love. Continuing on in verse 50, Mary says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's thinking not only of her own specific situation, but she's thinking of God's character and actions. This is who he is. He shows mercy. The word mercy there is is related to the Hebrew word hesed. Some of you might have heard that word before. If you haven't, don't worry. Hesed is one of the most significant words in the whole Old Testament scripture. It's a word, a deep word meaning God's faithfulness to his promises, his steadfastness to his love for his people. She brings that theme up again in verse 54, doesn't she? She says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his hesed, his mercy, his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God's promises are sure. Mary knows this. She's been given the faith to embrace this, and she has obeyed, trusting, certain that God will do what he has commanded to do or committed to do. What faith Mary has. What reason to rejoice in the God of her salvation. There in verse, verses 51 to 53, she, she picks up again this sort of upside-downness of God's power structure, his, his greatness meter. And she says, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. God exalts the humble. It's not that the humble and the poor are are naturally more holy or worthy of God's love. No one is worthy of his love, but some know that is true. And others ignore it. Dear friend, you you cannot follow God or trust in Jesus unless you are first divested of all hope you can save yourself. 
You cannot turn to Christ unless you have first given up your own kingship over your life. You cannot follow Jesus unless you humble yourself. Mary talks about the proud, doesn't she? Those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Did you catch that? She's talking about the proud who are in the thoughts of their hearts proud and prideful. We all know of people who kind of wear their pride on their sleeve, who can't talk enough about themselves. We call those people obnoxious, right? God is not interested in only just surfacy character. He's interested in those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's not interested in, in merely outward, behavioral, churchy humility. The humility we try to clothe ourselves on at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. God is interested in our hearts. And those whose hearts are proud and independent and show no need for him will not receive his salvation. But those who recognize their need will be prepared to accept his forgiveness. Mary mentions the mighty and their thrones in verse 52. She says, they will be brought down. God exalts the humble. So Mary's talking about the rich. The rich, who, the rich will have more temptation to come to God with their hands full, right? Thinking they might have something to offer him, to help him with his salvation plan. Something they can do to kind of, kind of provide assistance in, in making up for what they lack. He says they will, she says they will go away empty because only those whose hands are empty coming to God will take his riches. Well, those who come with riches will go away empty-handed. As the old hymn puts it, all the fitness God requires is to feel your need of him. So whether you're here, friend, and you're a Christian or you're, you're not really sure where you stand with God or, or if God even exists, I wonder, just basic question, do you feel need in your life? Do you, do you see how life is broken? Do you, do you sense any hunger for something greater, something better? Have you perhaps tried to knuckle down and maybe love yourself more so you can be more content with who you are? Maybe find what's missing from within. Have you found that road a dead end? Friend, you will not find the answer to your need within and by blocking the noise from without. You will find the answer to your need by by in some ways, guarding what's within, speaking truth to what's in, and receiving help from the outside, from the Lord who is above. I wonder, do you feel need? Friend, you have an unbuilt, inbuilt need for God. He has made you like you are. He has made you as a dependent creature with needs. That's not a result of the fall. Your needs are inbuilt into you when you were perfect, right? When Adam was perfect, he had needs for God. 
We will always need the Lord. He is the all-existing, independent, glorious king. We are his dependent servants. Christian brother and sister, do you need Jesus? I, I mean, we, we sing lyrics about our need. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. We, we pray like that's true, like, right? But when it's all out in the open, when you're honest... Where are you looking for your needs to be satisfied? Are you still kind of banking on your savings account to save you, pun intended? Are you still hoping that you can just keep your body in good enough shape uh, so that you can avoid kind of the, the family history of illness and get to a good old age and live a full life? Maybe that's, that's what you need. Are you looking for that perfect future spouse or that future perfect next spouse who will be able to provide all the needs that you want? Or are you discovering, Christian, more and more, the more you grow in your faith, the more you live in Jesus, that all you need is him. God exalts the humble. Jesus will say later in Luke's gospel that he has come to heal those who know they're sick. Not those who pretend everything's healthy. Church, how earth-shattering would it be for those who watch us as Christians in western Loudoun County to see us finding success and greatness as a church in need in humility, in lowliness, in service. Not simply buying into the latest and greatest. What could be more countercultural than that? That was countercultural on Mary's day in Luke chapter 1. And it's countercultural in our day in 2019 because what Jesus brings is an upside-down kingdom. An old shaker hymn sings, Lay me low where the Lord can find me. Lay me low where the Lord can own me. Lay me low where the Lord can bless me. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe all of this just sounds like good common sense. Right? After all, people who are arrogant tend to be less happy. People who are successful celebrities famously lead miserable lives. Even someone who doesn't believe in the Jesus of the Bible can probably recognize the benefit to humility. It'll probably make you happier. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But you know where that's borrowed from. Maybe you don't need to see Jesus to see the good in humility. Well, friend, I, I've left out the most amazing part of this humble Jesus. We've talked about how God, the, the exalted one, exalts the humble, but what did Jesus come to do? See, friend, the, the amazing part of all of this is that Jesus hasn't come to just give us good advice, good life counsel. You know, this, as, my, as your life coach, this would be a good idea, right? Be humble. You'll get places. No, he's come to bring good news. 
He has come with a message. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he who was exalted in heaven and deserved all praise and glory and adoration forever, he not only exalts the low, he became low. Where can we read that better than in Philippians chapter 2, right? Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself, but that's not the end. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God exalts the humble. God has exalted Jesus Christ. And in Christ, church, we too will one day be exalted with him. That's good news, not just good advice. Jesus, the one who never had any needs, took on our needs, our sin, our brokenness. Each one of us has sin that distances us from God, rebellion, deserving his righteous anger. But Jesus took that all on himself. Jesus was made low so we might live forever in the highest. Jesus was made poor so we might be forever rich in his abundant life. Jesus was made humble so we could be exalted with him. No, 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 this is not just humility for humility's sake. It's humility that looks to Christ alone, the humble Savior, as our hope for salvation. God exalts the humble. You know, we can only magnify God like Mary does in this passage when we give up our own tooth and nail struggle for our own magnification, our own glory. The spotlight can only shine one place. So if you're here and you, you haven't been honest with your need for Christ, you haven't turned to him for forgiveness for your sins, now is a time to humble yourself under his mighty hand and look up into his gracious face. He will save you if you turn in humility to him. And dear church, we can never approach this saving God like Rabadash approached Aslan. If we do, we will be made foolish donkeys in his presence. No, we must come as humble, needy servants like Mary and Elizabeth. Because this is God's upside-down kingdom, where the, the great in the world's eyes are made low, and the low in the world's eyes are made great. This is the way he chooses to work to bring himself glory and to bring us great joy. This is the way he has designed his creation to run. God exalts the humble. Let's pray. Our Lord, this is hard news for us because many of us spend a good chunk of our weeks trying to appear great. 
And so taking the hard words from your word, we see the good news for those who are humble in heart. And so we do humble ourselves before you. We draw near to you, asking that you would draw near to us. We lower ourselves as your humble servants, finding in that position of humility fullness of life. Lord, we love you. We pray that humility would increasingly characterize Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. For God exalts the humble. Amen.